0: back to Commodity Conversations. This podcast is brought to you by the team from mccaro.com.au. We are a team of agricultural market analysts and we like to use data to form opinions on markets and the general agricultural space. These informal conversations are generally long-form discussions, about 20 to 40 minutes long, where we discuss events or factors in the agricultural space with a particular bias towards Australian agriculture. These discussions are either with our internal team of analysts or they are with some special guests. We hope you enjoy the conversation and gain some insights. If you've got any questions or if you want to suggest some ideas to us, please get in contact in the usual places, on, on email, on Twitter, wherever you uh, follow us. Before we jump into it, I just want to say a big thank you to one of our supporters. Without our supporters, this wouldn't be possible. Today's podcast supporter is Cleavers Meat. For a long time, Cleaver's been well known for producing fantastic quality meat raised on good Australian farms. Quality has always been at the centre of their business, and they've made a big change now. As well as offering the normal prime cuts, you know, your steaks, etc., they've actually moved into convenient ready meals. We don't always have the time to do, you know, a nice big slow-cooked roast or you know, steak and veggies, and sometimes we've just got to get something quick and tasty. And uh, this is a good thing that they've moved into um, uh, convenient ready meals, because we know the quality that they've taken with their prime cuts will be transitioned into these ready meals. So you can actually get something that is good and healthy. For example, they've got some pretty good beef hot dogs, chicken nuggets, and a new lasagna that you can just shove in the oven and it's ready, you know, 20 minutes later. So... If you've not got much time on your hands and you want something uh, quick and tasty to eat, then definitely look up uh, Cleaver's Organic Products. Uh, you can get them in all the usual places, Coles, Woolies, and those uh, independent stores. So let's just get on to the conversation. Welcome back to another Commodity Conversations. This is myself, Andrew Whitelaw and Matt Dalglish. We're going to be talking today about the phase one deal between the super giants of China and the US. And instead of focusing, most newspapers and media are reporting on the impact on the US and their relations with with China. But we're really focused on what does it actually mean or what are the potential impacts on Australian agricultural uh, produce and obviously then uh, producers. So Matt... Let's, we'll probably talk a bit about you know the where this phase one deal came from, the the purpose of it, before we really getting into the nitty gritty of uh, how it impacts upon uh, Australian uh, producers potentially. So, you know, we've been well, we're what three years into a Trump presidency, uh, two years of that we've had 2018 and 2019 where we've had uh, trade scuffles between the two giants with uh, one country enacting tariffs followed by retaliatory tariffs from the other country. Uh, where it's really impacted the US and, and where it's really impacted agriculture has been China has chosen to really target, by the looks of it, areas which predominantly are probably in Trump heartlands, so automotive, but where we're concerned with is is agriculture. Uh, so we saw... Hefty tariffs on the likes of almonds, soybeans, and uh, wine, meat, and other products, which effectively meant that it was uncompetitive uh, to import from China and uh, in- import into China from the US compared to a lot of other origins. So, Matt, it's this Phase One deal. This is. Uh, This is going to be an interesting one because this is the first sign of a falling relations. Still very early stages and a lot of water to go under the bridge. Uh, But what does it really mean? Like we're talking uh, 2017 was 24 billion in U.S. exports
1: to China. What are the targets for the phase one deal? Uh, Yeah, that's right, Andrew. It's it's an interesting uh, announcement, this uh, Phase 1 deal, and like you said, it's a lot to go yet, but... um it leaves probably more questions than answers <laughs> in a lot of areas. Well, we've got to remember that Phase 1 doesn't mean that any of those tariff levels are adjusted. That's not coming till Phase 2. So the tariffs remain in place um, for all of those products. But in broad terms, the uh, the goal is, is is for China to increase the value of their... Uh, imports of US goods, and if we just focus in on the agricultural goods, like you said, Andrew, in 2017 it was about 24 billion worth US of uh, agricultural goods going out of the US to China. Um, now, the Chinese have committed to buying 36 billion uh, by this year and up to 43 billion US by 2021. So, we're talking uh, a big jump in those volumes um in order to to reach the overall target for all all commodities across a whole range of industries of 200 billion uh, which is a, in, you know,
0: in US dollars as well correct
1: yeah so a very big target it's,
0: so let's, let's have a look at just some of those numbers to put in in perspective uh, so australian agriculture was what run about 60 billion dollars in total yeah, dollars yeah. probably 2 yeah. years ago and yeah. the aim is to get to 100 billion by 2030 2030 mm. uh, so really, we're actually talking, you know, an increase up to a levels, which is effectively equivalent to the entire Australian agricultural industry, in yeah. to, into China within yeah. the next two years.
1: Yeah, they're very ambitious targets, you could say. And uh, I have to say, um, given that we're heading into an election um, year in America for, for, for Trump. What, what, what would you say to Trump about, his, uh, about these targets? About how ambitious they are? Tell him he's dreaming. Yeah,
0: he's probably dreaming. I
1: think. I think so. I, I, the, my first uh, reading of it was, uh, "Tell them they're dreaming," um, and and I think you know we're going to delve into some of those figures in more depth and see exactly why we think um, that they are dreaming. Um, and as but, but, we do that, we're going to we're going to focus because the, the US and, the, and China, as part of this deal, have set two thousand seventeen as their benchmark year. Um, we, we recall, and you've outlined already, Andrew, that there were a lot of trade issues.
0: Yeah, so this is the last year pre-tariffs, Exactly,
1: 2018-19 we saw lower flows from the US to China and so what they're trying to do is say let's set 2017 flows and value as the benchmark and let's see if we can improve upon those. But um, when you start to drill down into the numbers and into the types of commodities that make up those broader agricultural trade flows, you start to see how difficult it's going to be, I think, to reach these targets.
0: Which is, clearly, it's going to be difficult to reach those targets. Uh, one of those reasons is by virtue of the fact that a big chunk of those, you know, import programme into China is soybeans. And there are questions about soybean demand and how it will stick up with African swine fever. Uh, but one thing got to remember is, I guess part of this agreement is they've got to show best endeavours, to get to those sort of levels. And it almost seems to me like an aspirational target. And uh, they need to try and show that they're trying to purchase as much as possible. So even though they might not get to those targets, this could have huge ramifications on on a number of industries uh, globally. But obviously, Australia, we have strong strong trade flows with China, so it could potentially have uh, ramifications for us for, for agriculture and other associated, I guess, agricultural products.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, even if they don't, so, say the Chinese uh, government and, and entities and consumers start to favour some US product across some of these agricultural uh, commodities, if um, even if they don't reach the target, but they try to achieve those targets and get even halfway there, uh, for some uh, Australian sectors that are you know, heavily geared towards China uh, within agriculture, they could face um, some fairly stiff competition. I think we'll, we'll cover off on those as we maybe go through the figures.
0: So let's start off then. Let's let's look into the I guess the nitty gritty and the detail of it. The first one again is probably that soybeans. So, Matt, what do you think?
1: Yeah, that's right. So, soybeans, if you go, look at the flow of soybeans from the US to China in 2017, which, as we said, is that benchmark year, you're talking about 12 billion of about a 24 billion flow with soybeans. So, half of the flow of agricultural commodity out of the US to China in that 2017 year was soybean. So, you've got to expect that if uh, the US are going to try and reach this target they're, they're aiming for of 43 billion in a couple of years, Again, a fair significant proportion of that is going to have to be soybean, or if it can't be soybean, then they're going to have to increase a whole range of other commodities, which we'll go into in a minute, to try and match this this target. But I just, you know, it's a it's a it's a big number they're going to have to draw from.
0: Yeah, so they're going to. Have, the obvious one would be to increase soybeans, but they've got to be market prices as well. So the US is still going to be market competitive.
1: And the biggest, the biggest uh, com- competitor to the US would be, I guess, Brazil.
0: Brazil is the biggest competitor, and they've got a decent crop this year. So this is where it becomes: how much more can they increase soybeans? So let's say, for instance, what's the next next biggest product imported into into China
1: from the US in terms of ag products is wood products,
0: and that's and that's globally as well. Yeah, that's,
1: that's right. Yeah, and you're talking. <clears throat> So yeah, what what
0: what difference what difference in volume is that again?
1: Well, 2017, the total of wood products is about three, just over three billion. So you can see already we're dropping from 12 billion of soybean to three billion of wood product, and and that's where I'm coming from. As you go further down the list in terms, You're
0: of... You're already getting into the rats and mice exactly. within within two two or three commodities. Exactly. So um, what it's going to have to mean is that we're probably going to have to. Well, they'll probably have to increase soybeans because they've probably got no choice really if they want to. Get anywhere near these targets, but then we're going to have to start, you know, slicing and chopping and changing from every little commodity that mm. the import mm. from, it, from anywhere in the
1: world. And, and the thing is that if you start to look, just let's just look at proportional share um, from the US. So, so that 2017 year soybean, um, it was soybean from the US was thirty four. They were thirty four percent of the soybean um, going into China. Right, um, was US product. Um, now, to increase it, like you said, it's really going to be difficult to compete with Brazil given the Brazilian, uh, looks, what looks like the Brazilian harvest is going to be a bumper. So that's going to mean lower prices and competitive market. But even on a best case scenario, if the US can increase their soybean imports into China to say 46% or 45% or something like that, which is a big, big increase, you're, you're really only talking $16 billion in value there. Um, and that's you know, then you then like you said, you're going to start to get down in those lower value ones, which they're going to have to try and find, um, you know, a billion here, a billion here, billion there from all these other lower commodities, which is going to make it really hard, I think, for them to reach their 43 billion target.
0: And so even even in a lot of these rats and mice type of commodities, we're still talking potentially big trade flows for Australia. Well, that's, that's the thing no, we're, we're talking yeah. about we're saying smaller values but these smaller values could be a billion dollars 2 billion dollars
1: could be could be five times the size of the Australian flows and that's that and, and not just australia you've got new zealand and other players like canada and that, that are importing product into china that are agricultural based if um, if the chinese do make a concerted effort to try and reach these 40b in 43b in target and they start um, heavily favoring us product they still might not reach the 43 they might get to you know 35 or something but on the on the process to get there they might be destroying some other uh import industries into china in terms of you know uh other sectors that are that are heavily geared towards china other agricultural sectors um are going to have to miss out this why don't we
0: start delving into which industries we think will probably be most impacted by this deal or has the most potential to be impacted so we we've we sort of been looking at it, two of us, this week and we sort of picked out four or five which we think are probably the important ones. What's, you had livestock. How do you think that's going to be impacted?
1: Yeah, so I, I guess if you look at livestock and you take the Australian experience, you have got you know, predominantly beef and and sheep meat are the two key markets. The pork sector is a big one for the US into China, but not really for Australia. So Australian pork producers, are, you know, it's not really an export market there. Well, we don't
0: have barcoded protocols for China anyway.
1: That's right. That's right. So really, simply then, for, for livestock and red meat, we're, we're predominantly focused on on beef and uh, and sheep meat. Um, fortunately for the Australian and New Zealand exporters of sheep meat, um, the US aren't really a player in that sheep meat space. So again. Um, short of it being some form of uh, substitution effect of, of, of U.S. beef for um, sheep meat product, mm-hmm. there's really a limited risk factor there.
0: What about U.S. beef for Chinese be- eh, for Australian beef?
1: Yeah, so that's the big one, I guess. Um, risk factor is that U.S. beef start to get a bit of a foothold into China. Um, and there's a bit of a backstory behind that. But, so, but then we'd end up having to trade... Our beef into u.s to replace some of that <laughs> potentially i mean the u.s do consume 90 percent of what they produce over there so the domestic mm-hmm. market in the u.s for beef is massive and, and that's part of the reason they're nowhere near as export focused as australia is but if you go back historically and look and see you know the u.s have had a couple of goes at trying to increase their presence in china for, for the beef product Um, Historically, they've never really got more than 1% of the Chinese imports of beef. Because they've got
0: issues with the age of the cattle and Uh, the traceability. Traceability. But but, but part of this agreement is that they don't really have to worry about that.
1: Well, they're they're reducing it. So, yeah, um, traceability was one key factor. Historically, they did have a bit of BSE scenario, which limited the penetration of US beef. But then also, you know, US beef is heavily feedlot orientated and grain fed. And as part of that process, there's um, human growth promotants. Uh, sorry, I should say hormone growth promotants yeah. um, that are uh, that are used in the US extensively in that feedlot operation. And that's something that China have uh, very much steered away from. And and part of the reason why they've got a real preference for the the green um, grass fed. Uh, image of Australian beef as it really plays into the Australian beef producers' <coughs> favour. Um, however, as you said, Andrew, the some of the regulations around both traceability and the use of some of these hormones uh, are being are being reduced, and that's potentially going to allow some level of access for US beef into China that's that's bigger than what we use, have seen historically.
0: But the other thing, I guess, is the reality is that we're, we're concerned. Our us concern with the Phase One agreement is that. China will stop buying products and put a preference in for the US. The reality is with livestock, though, we've got African swine fever. If we didn't have African swine fever, the concern would be huge that this would impact upon Australian prices and that producers can get. But the reality is that they've got such a huge demand that, you know, it, this could, phase one deal, if it continues into 2022, 2023 and 24, would be... Dramatic if they're no longer needing as much protein, but with African swine fever, they could suck up all of the the meat that the US has to export, and they still have to come to us most likely yeah, to think, to infill.
1: Yeah, I think in the short term the risk factors for the Australian beef sector are, are limited. Um, like I said, that there's a bit more to be done for the for the US to satisfy the Chinese, I think, officials and Chinese consumers. And realistically, like Australia is, um, they're about 20% of the Chinese imports of beef. Um, So... We've got a we've had a long-standing presence in China, and, and Australian product has a really good reputation. Um, so it's not going to be easy for US beef to crack into that market, I don't think in the short term. Uh, however, over that longer period of time, and, and as you said, Andrew, the the demand from China for protein across the board because of the ASF crisis. But
0: you said you said one thing that it's going to be hard for them in the short term to get into China, but I guess the devil's advocate in me sort of looks at it and thinks, well, China's just shut down two entire cities overnight and banned all travel. The Chinese government can do things extremely quickly. They can build a railway in a year that would take us 20 years.
1: They sure so, can. So
0: they can... Mm. They can dictate a lot to their... Which are companies, which are effectively all... Mm. Most companies in China have some form of a government board member. They can quite quickly dictate that they must buy from the US. So... I think we've got to be careful that, yeah, we can say that it would be hard for them to get in there if it was a normal free market environment. But this is mm. this is not a free market environment. This is a, a a political regime that can do things extremely quickly. So that's one thing to consider.
1: Yeah, look, it's a fair point. And certainly you don't want to be dismissive of and, this. And, and, really. and you can
0: sort of see that with in the actual phase one agreement, the actual... Uh, you know the number of concessions that the US are getting on things like HGPS or whatever you have there in terms of making access easier.
1: So yeah, mm. I mean I guess yeah you're not wrong, and from from that perspective, we need to like I said not be dismissive of the of this whole deal. But like I said, the the short term I can't see a real um, significant uh, impact on it on the Australian side of the of the beef uh, export flows.
0: If we had. No African swine fever, this conversation would be completely different. I reckon.
1: Yeah, you probably there'd be more impetus um, uh, to pay attention to it, and 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 the US type of product is is more competitive to the Australian type of product. You know, you've got obviously a lot of other beef imports into China from, say, Brazil and Argentina, but they tend to be into that lower um, lower value markets, whereas the US beef is a direct competitor to a degree to the types of cuts um, that we send to China as well, at least in certain certain markets. The, the thing to make a point, though, there, Andrew, that even if you looked at a best-case scenario, and this is going back again and looking at the proportion of the US flows, like I said, um, the US flows from, from beef into, into China have been less than 1% of the flows going in. Even, let's just say hypothetically, the US can increase this over the next two years to 10%, which is a massive increase in their flow. In terms of the contribution to our 43 billion target, um, that's really only 0.3 of a billion. Um, and that's what I'm saying, uh, that, that when we go back to that rats and mice stuff, it's, it's all these other smaller agricultural which, which commodities.
0: Which means these commodities are going to have to be impacted because they're going to have to shave away everything. <laughs> Well, potentially, to to, potentially, if they're going if, to, if they, if they truly want to achieve those targets, they're going to have to look at every commodity and say, you know, where, where there's, there's, there's twenty two million, there's a billion, there's, there's what have. Well, you. that's
1: that key aspect of, of the, the soybean is going to be hard for them to reach, so they're going to have to take it from everywhere else, and and it's going to be a whole range of commodities. Some of those won't be commodities that Australia are exporting to China, so it's probably going to be a, ne- a negligible impact from our from our so,
0: perspective. So, so let's look at another one. Barley has been an interesting one of China just on its own in the last couple of years. Yeah. Uh, we've seen uh, China has been uh, accusing Australia of dumping barley on them in, in 2016. Uh, that investigation is still ongoing, and the results due out in May. Uh, I guess that's a big driver as well is that China has been importing a large volume of our barley in the last probably 5-6 years and okay the US doesn't export much in the way of barley but that could be replaced quite easily with s- sorghum or corn, uh, corn. Yeah. clearly they'll still need barley for, for malt purposes uh, although that can obviously potentially be used by other grains as well So we've got these issues here where like, for instance, barley, which has been, you know, China's been a strong customer of ours in in recent times. Obviously, the last year with drought, a lot of barley's gone into the domestic market, which has held things up. But we go back to a normal year this year and touch wood, we have the rain that we're getting in the last couple of weeks continues. We have a decent crop and uh, China could turn around and say, well, we don't want it because... We need to uh, we need to preference a US and we'll take some sorghum and we'll take some corn and and then again even then when I say that we've I'm talking about barley but we do produce a sorghum crop we're not going to produce a sorghum crop this year of any volume but next year we will hopefully fingers crossed I'm a I'm a positive Scotsman here so they could quite easily turn around and say look, we don't we don't want that which you got the numbers there on barley I think.
1: Oh yeah, or the bar- yeah we're looking at um, barley compared to US corn or sorghum. So, if, if if you were to say over the next few years that US take nothing other than US corn and sorghum, and so 100 percent of that what would be the barley flow becomes US corn and sorghum, you're really only talking uh, an additional 1.3 billion or 1.4 billion to the which, to the broad, which doesn't
0: target. make a huge impact to the broad target,
1: but it makes a big impact big to big market barley producers, to the stra- uh, barley producers in exactly, Australia and. Yeah. Uh,
0: Obviously, the trade flows change, and you know the corn that's not going in—that's going into China, or the sorghum that's going into China, or whatever it is that replaces barley potentially—it'll go somewhere else. Mm. So there's only a finite amount of grain in the world, and the trade flows just change to accommodate. But in the short term, there could be short term. Um, trade flow issues, which mm. is a big issue.
1: I guess a, a similar type story around that barley space would be something like almonds, Andrew, as well, that, um, you know, again, in the almond industry, uh, it's a developing one within Australia, we're seeing. Um, yeah,
0: well, that's one of the ones we've been looking at. Uh, we're obviously, uh, Matt and I are on a diet that involves almonds, and we've been keeping a close eye on them. But you look at almonds, and it's been a good news story. If you'd invested in almonds five years ago, you'd be doing... Pretty well. One of the largest drivers of that has been basically there was a tariff on almonds, which come out of California, basically into into China, of about fifty percent, which effectively just turns around and says, right, if if you're importing to China, you're better off importing from uh, Australia or anywhere else in the world. So straight after those tariffs were introduced, we saw uh, China's importance. In the Australian almond industry, go from two percent of Australian almonds going to China, and we call it China and Hong Kong combined because they're basically the same. And if it goes into Hong Kong, it's probably going into China as a proxy. It's gone from two percent of uh, the Australian market in 2017 to 20 percent of the market in uh, 2018, 19. So, let's say, for instance, uh, they can get it. A little bit more, uh, they can switch back quite easily. Mm. They switch quickly enough in one year to to Australia. They could switch back to China, uh, to the US, like Johnny on the spot, really.
1: Yeah, potentially.
0: I mean, and and like you said, that the to put it in perspective, that's in one year it went from six hundred tons to twelve thousand tons. You know are effectively just slightly over 100,000 tonnes of That's the Australian of f- Australian, Australian.
1: of almonds to China. I mean, if you look at it from the Chinese perspective, Andrew, in that almond space, and so it's a huge, as you said, it's a huge part of our almond market um, is the Chinese buying. Uh, but um, looking at total imports of almonds into China and going back to that 2017 season, um, the US were about 76% of the Chinese imports back then. It's um, so 700 million. Yeah, that's CO2. right. Yeah, so dwarfing what we send. But again, if you say, well, best best case scenario, the Chinese say we're going to only take US almonds uh, and they increase their almond imports purely to be 100% US based, you're not even at a bit, or you're just short of a billion dollars of, of product. And so that's, you know, again, it, it's not a big contributor to the 43 billion target, but. It's going to decimate the Australian industry if they don't take Australian Well, if, if they go
0: from, saying, they've gone from 600 tonnes to 12,000 tonnes, and there's been a lot of investment in almond plantations over the past a lot of year. A lot of water being purchased too. A lot of water uh, being purchased exactly. to, to grow them. So if we have that, and then let's, I'm going back to this sort of view of China being able to change things pretty quickly overnight. They go back to 600 tonnes you know, all that investment in time of building up the Chinese market could be obliterated. Mm. And, there are,
1: and there are almond farms in Australia that are accessing that water that are yet to be uh, fully which, operational. Which yeah. is a
0: flow-on effect, is that, like, uh, you've got to water them every year anyway. But will there be, if this phase one type of agreement goes on for a couple of years, do they start mothballing uh, almond plantations? And, uh, you know... Does that have a, an impact upon you know those those water entitlement rights? Will they, they become less valuable? Because let's be honest, almonds are a high-value crop, and that's why they're willing to pay shed loads for the, the money to water them because it's it's profitable. But if you suddenly remove twenty percent of the market, you know I'm not a water expert nor a almond expert, but you know I know when you remove a big. Uh, Big proportion of demand, it tends to be a negative on the uh, the overall market.
1: I think if I was an almond producer, I'd be much more nervous than if I was a beef producer. Is, is my summation of that uh, scenario? Yeah, well, it's, I think it's going to be interesting. And
0: uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think I, I won't be stocking up on almonds just now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> one other, I guess, one other area, a key one for Australia as well, would probably be within that dairy space, Andrew and. Um, I guess you can look at, when, you, when you're talking dairy product, you can look at a whole range of different factors, but the key one from a Chinese import perspective is the milk concentrate. Um, that's a big one that uh, that they're importing uh, predominantly from New Zealand. Yeah. Um, but uh, if you look at, again, those 2017 flows, which are the benchmark, New Zealand was around 70% of uh, imports into China for milk concentrate, and then Australia was in second place at uh, 8%. Um, closely followed by the U.S. at four percent. So that's that's one space where the U.S. and Australia are direct competitors into China. Um, and if if there was a incentive there from from Chinese uh, buyers and government officials and and uh, whatnot to encourage uh, the U.S. over and above uh, New Zealand and Australia, um, you could see a, another significant impact there in terms of. Um, of uh, the, the dairy industry within Australia, which, is, we, as we know, has already been uh, suffering under a whole range of different issues uh, over the last few years and certainly not another... Uh, it would be another nail in the coffin, I think, for the dairy sector. Well, uh, I, I think you've been a bit bit negative there, Matt.
0: I think uh, it's not doing as bad as it has done in the past. There's obviously probably cost pressures on... on a lot of the uh, the ingredients for, for growing milk, you know, your grain price has been high, your water price has been high, uh, but yeah, you are right. It's it's another one of those things that just puts a bit of a bearish undertone into the the Australian uh, dairy industry, whereas you know, it's not it's not going to make a huge amount of volume of the overall targets, but again, it's going to hit upon. Those uh, those producers that, that that flow into China.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, looking at the um, the flows uh, again, you know, back in two thousand and seventeen, US imports of milk concentrate to China were about four percent, like I said, uh, of the of the imports into China, and, and that equated to about nine hundred thousand of. Um, of nine hundred thousand US of uh, of items um, uh, value going in. Um, if you took a best case scenario for the US and said, what if they could increase their their um, penetration into China to say twenty percent, which is a massively uh, huge increase over it's a couple optimistic. of years, it is. You're only talking about getting the total flow then up to about half a billion, uh, you know, which is again just scratching at the you know the the edges of uh, of the forty three billion target, but. Could could make a significant impact uh, in terms of um, you know reductions in flows out of New Zealand to China and out of uh, Australia to China.
0: Let's look at a couple of the other ones just very very briefly. Some of them are I guess allied to agriculture. You've got you know malt extract is one that's going to be potentially impacted. Uh, hides, you know tanned hides will be mm-hmm. impacted. Pretty have potentially wines another one. Uh, even though Australian wine's superior to
1: Californian wine. Uh, Australian mm. wine superior to every uh, country's wine, I, I think, like, Andrew, but anyway.
0: Well, especially uh, Margaret River wine. Uh, but anyway, we look at that, uh, and then even things like crustaceans, you know, where we don't, a lot of these products were not contributing a huge amount to China's overall uh, marketplace, but we have invested in building supply chains into those areas. And I think this is potentially bigger than people realise.
1: Yeah, that's right. Like For for, for
0: these individual small industries, it is is going to be a a big impact.
1: Well, some of those uh, commodity spaces you mentioned there, Andrew, are all ones where we do have some level of a direct uh, competitive uh, relationship with the US into China in those spaces, mould extracts, hides, um and crustaceans and wine we, we we export all of those products to china at, at varying proportions and and the us are also in that space um they're not necessarily the biggest competitor in all of them but they are ones where um if the us were to, were to be favored uh, above all others then um the potential flow and impact for those industries could be significant again for australia similar to how we've outlined Thank for you. barley and, uh, and almonds our baloney industry Pretty much a Chinese exclusive uh,
0: marketplace. But I guess just to summarize, like, what do you think about this deal? Like, what's your opinion on it?
1: Oh, look, the cynic in me says that, from a, if you look at it from a political perspective, from the Chinese, the Chinese know that. The Americans are going to an election. Um, they've been suffering with these trade hostilities uh, from an economic perspective, and certainly their GDP has suffered for it, um, and the confidence in China. So the Chinese government did want to get this resolved. Um, it appears to me as though the Chinese are just kind of nodding and smiling and saying, whatever you say, sir, um, You know, we'll make an attempt to, uh, to, to buy more of your products. And they could be just waiting and seeing... Whether Trump indeed is elected again, whether whether they have to see it through, or whether it all changes again, but I think
0: conversely as well, it's it's the same on on the U.S. side potentially. Well, yeah, Trump. He is using he, it. he uses this as a as a trophy to say, you know, I've have uh, hammered down the Chinese, and look how good I am. I'm, I'm there for you.
1: Well, that's it. But then, it, assuming he does get elected uh, this year, does he continue to pursue? this trade deal, or is now that he's back in for another term, does he just say, oh, well, I've changed my mind again, as he's apt to do sometimes with his, uh, you know, kind of erratic displays, um, he, he could turn around and once voted back in say, oh, I've, I've decided now that... Well, um oh, I'm pretty... I've,
0: it'd be interesting because I'm, I'm pretty much sure he's going to win the election. <laughs> Uh, and I've been pretty good at judging them. Well, the you, last you,
1: you did call the Trump win on the last election. I grant you that. Uh, and you, Trump, and you Brexit, Australia, a Brexit and, and a Boris Johnson. Boris uh, Johnson. Uh, so you you are the soothsayer of the office, Andrew, Nostradamus so of the office. Um, but it's, it's because
0: I know the people well. You know, I've, <laughs> got, I've got an understanding. I'm one of the, the the real people.
1: Yeah, but I mean, getting back to that to your question, though, I think that it's it's it is very early days in the negotiation. Like we said, the. Um, the tariffs won't get adjusted either way until phase two, and phase two isn't coming until after the election. Uh, so that's what I mean. That there's a lot to be done there. But
0: uh, And it comes back to, I think, what I said before. There's actually probably more questions in the deal than the deal actually answers. Mm. Like, there's just so much uncertainty. Mm. Like, we don't know what volume.
1: But to summarise the broad picture, and if we look at those broad numbers... We we, we at Mercado went through and analysed all of those different um, key agricultural commodities that the US import into China and um, we looked at it and said, well, on on a very best case scenario where you assume the US are heavily favoured um, and that they could increase their penetration significantly and, and some of these may already have restrictions around supply some of these industries if they can even do that but let's assume they can at the very best i think um you're probably looking at something like uh you know just over 30 billion or so would be what they could potentially increase it to and and part of that would have to be a very big part of soybeans which again as we've outlined is going to be a huge ask um so I, i personally think um, they're not going to be able to achieve it at all.
0: But uh, what they might be able to do is show that they're endeavouring or putting best endeavours to actually meet the target.
1: Well, that's the key point. Even if they don't achieve it at all, but you know, come some level of a way to achieving it uh, when we're talking an increase of, say, maybe they could increase $10 billion worth of flow from 24 to 34, let's Still say. Still huge. Uh, when, you, when, you,
0: when you think that we're trying to get ourselves up to $30 extra over the next decade mm. through you know technology and trade flows and whatever else mm. and all sorts of different things well that's the whereas, rub. The, whereas they can inc- the benefit from this they can increase it by
1: 10 billion in a year well <laughs> that's it that's the rub right if they could increase from 24 to 34 in two years um they won't reach the target but in trying to reach the target they could um they could have a significant impact to Parts of the Australian agricultural sector.
0: See, I'm, I guess personally, I'm not a fan of this type of deal. I think it's probably, to an extent, it goes against my principles as a as a free marketeer in that it does distort marketplaces because you're effectively forcing somebody to to favour your products over over other products, and I and I think. It, <laughs> Like as much as we say that it's got this um, you know competition clause that it has to be competitive in market based prices, this is still having an impact upon prices, I reckon, and this is still driving things, and I just feel that having having this sort of anti you know any free market type of uh, agreements is probably something that could come back to bite years down the line. When uh, these agreements, you know, these agreements always end up getting uh, shelved. And then you have a market that goes back to being the normality, which is probably 27 billion, 24 billion. Can they sustain 40 billion? We're talking about 40 billion or 43 billion by 2021. Are they going to sustain that through to 2026? So what happens when they stop coming to this agreement? And it's a market-based, free market sort of enterprise. I don't know what you think about that, but
1: I think um, trade negotiations and trade flows are are, are an incredibly complex uh, uh, beast to work your head around. And I think if projecting it out any further than a couple of years is, is I think fraught with danger anyway, irrespective of, of you know if when you overlay the political dimensions and and you know what's happened in the last few years with. Um, with Trump as the uh, as the you know one of the key leaders of the free world, I guess you could say, um, you know, from a from a politi- politics and diploma- diplomatic perspective, it's been um, it's been difficult to predict. Um, we, you combine that with already complex trade negotiations across a whole range of different countries and commodities, it it becomes, uh, again, another added layer of complexity. Um, but I think, you know, fail, fail to say, I think we can, we can fairly surely uh, say that uh, this is going to be an unachievable target. as a key takeaway. Um, but that doesn't mean it won't be a risk for Australian um, sectors. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, know, that's, that's kind of my takeaway. Anything more than that, I think you're... Um, yeah, you, you're kind of um, delving into an area which becomes really, really hard to uh, to get a good handle on um, long term.
0: Right. Well, I reckon that's probably it. We've probably covered everything.
1: Matt, anything else to add or is that it? No, I think uh, I think that's it from, uh, from my perspective, but it's going to be interesting to just watch and see how it develops.
0: Well, I think there's one thing that you can always say, you can always use the word interesting and Trump, uh, because he's given us plenty to talk about in the last two years. China's given us plenty to talk about with African swine fever and... Jeez, we might be talking about coronavirus soon and whatever else, uh, but yeah, I think we'll leave it there. Uh, thanks very much for listening all the way through. Hope you have learned something. Uh, as per usual, if you can share this with your friends and families, it would be much appreciated. But also, as well as that, if you you know if you work in any of these industries or you're you know you're working for a peak body in one of these commodities uh, or any of the other commodities, and you. Concerned about what the impact may have, then give us a call. We're more than happy to have a chat and uh, provide some of our analysis uh, into these sort of industries and uh, the potential trade flow implications. We've obviously not gone into the full detail and depth of every every commodity uh, on this podcast, but we've got additional information uh, available. So, yeah, you can contact us any time to go into more depth and detail. Uh, have a good one, uh, as always. Uh, It's been interesting to learn from one another and the team here at Makaro And we hope you've learned something. And uh, yep, we'll uh, catch up soon. Bye-bye.